0: To Joshua chapter 23. A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel... From all the surrounding enemies. And Joshua was old and well advanced in years. Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years. And you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes. Those nations that remain along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the West. The Lord, your God, will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight. And you shall possess their land just as the Lord, your God, promised you. Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it, neither to the right hand nor to the left. That you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of their names, of their gods, or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God, just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand since it is the Lord your God who fights for you. Just as he promised you. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you. Know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes Until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. And now I'm about to go the way of all the earth. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you. So the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you. If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given you. So after God had given rest to Israel and all of their enemies had been pacified. They're no longer seeking to attack them. Joshua then calls all of the leaders of Israel before him. It says the elders, the heads of the family, judges, officers. Basically, he calls before them everybody that's in a significant position of influence. And Joshua's message to them is essentially that they need to remain faithful to God's covenant. Israel will continue to prosper if they do, but if they begin to consider God's word lightly, the opposite's going to happen. They'll be destroyed. And in this speech, Joshua gives essentially two commands. And they're surrounded by reminders of God's faithfulness. Maybe as I was reading, it stood out to you how often it, 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 the, the passage speaks of the faithfulness of God, that He is. Kept all of these promises that he has made. So these two commands are surrounded and emphasized by the promises of God's faithfulness. Verses one through eight focus on God's faithfulness and then highlight the command to keep and do all that is written in the law of Moses. And verses nine through 13 also again highlight God's faithfulness and then focus on the command to love God. Finally, verses 14 through 16 conclude Joshua's speech. And essentially, the message there is, the future is up to you. So Joshua begins his exhortation by reminding the leaders of what God has already done. Verse 3, you'll notice he says, You have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. And the emphasis here is the same as the theme of the book of Joshua. The fact that God is the one that has been fighting for them. The reason that they've enjoyed so much victory in Israel is not because of their strength. It's not because of their power, their wisdom and their intellect. It's because God himself has fought for them. And he says this to remind them that just as God has been faithful in the past, likewise, he's going to continue to remain faithful in the future to drive out the enemies, as long as Israel also stays committed to finish the job. So a significant number of Canaanites still dwell in the land. They're pacified, they're subdued, they don't constitute a major threat, but they are very much present, and thereby they do constitute a threat. So there's this strong sense of concern. And the tenor of the exhortation is like a a father who's exhorting his children about their untrustworthy friends. It's like he's saying, I'm about to go away and I'm concerned about these friends that you have. So if you don't take heed of their negative influence. It's going to be your fault because I've warned you about them. You don't have to keep them as friends. You can leave them. And so, since I'm going away, the risk of their negative influence is going to be all the more strengthened. So I implore you, get rid of them. Leave them. Cut off your ties from these untrustworthy friends because I'm going and their influence is going to be all the more strong in my absence. And so to guard them, Joshua begins by exhorting them to know and follow God's Word. That's the first point in your outline. Remember and follow God's Word. He makes this command in verse 6. Therefore, be very strong to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left. So the command that he gives is be strong. Now, all of us want to be strong. We want to be physically strong. And so we go to gyms and we work out, maybe take supplements. We try to stay in shape. We want to be intellectually strong. And so we study and we read. We want to be emotionally strong so that we can be resilient and confident. And not lose heart. But the strength that this is calling for is the strength to resist temptation And this is the strength that we as Christians should focus upon. This is the strength that we should really care about because, eternally speaking, this is the strength that really matters. This is the strength that has eternal implications. And so it's what we should aspire to. Notice also that the word strong is modified by the adverb very. Uh, The Hebrew word that's used there is the word ma'od. And the memory device that I used when I was studying Hebrew back in seminary was alamod. And so just like pie is good in itself, pie with ice cream, alamod, is very good. So alamod is very good, right? So it's this emphasis. Be very strong. And what's interesting, too, is... When the next command that he gives in verse 11 to be, is to be very careful to love God. So he uses the word very both times. So these aren't just, remember to Do these commands, be very careful to make sure you keep these commands. Both commands are intensified by this adverb. They're to be very strong in order that they both keep and do his commands. So... The word keep essentially means to hold on to something like a shepherd who would keep his sheep from wandering away at night. So we keep commands by keeping them fixed upon our mind, not letting those commands wander away and um, forgetting them. And in remembering God's word, they should also then perform God's word, doing what it says. They shouldn't be like the son that says, I know, dad, you don't want me hanging out with these friends. You've told me that again and again and again. And yet, then he goes and that's who he spends time with on the weekends. It does no good to know the command if you do nothing with the command. As James says, be not doers of the word and hear and not be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forget what he's like. So they need to both remember those commands, but not just remember them so that they can pass a test, but they need to then do those commands. So they to be very strong in order to both remember and do God's word. But note also what it says. All that is written. They are to do all that is written. Not one word of the law should be overlooked or neglected. Not one word. All that is written. Then it says turning aside neither to the right nor the left. That is, they need to be careful to follow it exactly. The idiom to the right hand or the left means... They need to essentially stay on the path. Keep the course. Don't try to go around anything just because you don't like it. Don't overlook any word or exhortation. Because in overlooking these words, it will only lead to danger. Be careful to look at all that it is written. Remember all that is written. Do all that is written. And verse 7 tells us that the reason that they are to be very strong to keep and to do all that is written without veering, is so that they would not mix with the nations. Verse 7, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you, or make mention of the names of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. So the reason that they need to be careful to obey God's word is because... ...of the gods that these other peoples worship. The threat is these other people's gods. And Joshua emphasizes how desperately they need to avoid their worship. He says it four different ways. Don't mention their names. Don't swear by them. Don't serve them. Or bow down to them. And if you look at that again... ...you'll notice that there's this progressive growth in those words... What starts as a mere mentioning of the name ends up where? Bowing down. That's Joshua's point. Don't even start. Don't toy with what these people are worshiping. Because slowly and surely these things will lead your heart away. And eventually you'll end up worshiping the same gods that these other people worship. And you'll know this is happening when what you thought was once shocking and unthinkable, after a while, you find yourself thinking it's normative or even commendable. And eventually one day you wake up and discover that you've actually joined them in worshiping their false gods. So as I thought about how... A way to try and illustrate this, where my mind went actually pretty almost immediately was the warning that Solomon gives his son in Proverbs chapter 7 with the warning of the forbidden woman. So I would encourage you to flip in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 7 and just consider what Solomon says and the consequences of being led astray. You'll note that he starts by exhorting his son to stand fast, to hold fast to God's commands. Because if he doesn't, he'll be led astray. And then also consider about the the parallels with uh, this forbidden women and the forbidden gods that Joshua's warning them of. He says, Solomon says in verse 1, chapter 7, My son, keep my words. And treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you're my sister. And call insight, your intimate friend, to keep you from the forbidden woman. From the adulteress with her smooth words. And notice how this takes place. He narrates this luring away. For at the window of my house I have looked out through my lattice. And I've seen among the simple I've perceived among youths, a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. Number of red flags there. It's not a good time to be walking by a forbidden woman's house and not a good place to be walking either. And behold, verse 10, the woman meets him. Dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She's loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, in every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices and today I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly. And I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings colored linens from the Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband's not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. With with much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter. Or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim he has laid low. She is laid low and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol. Going down to the chambers of death. So how does one avoid the perils of being led astray from God's word? How does one not end up like this foolish young man in Proverbs 7? Well, Joshua tells us in verse 8. But you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. The greatest defense against adultery is to cling to your spouse. And likewise, the greatest defense we have against the temptations of this world is to cling to God. And this is true in regard to physical temptations like pain or suffering or lust It's also true regarding spiritual temptations like discouragement, pride, or anxiety. The greatest offense against any temptation is to cling to God. It's interesting. This word cling is actually the same word that's used to describe Adam in his relationship to his wife in Genesis 2.24. Where God says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast, cling to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So it, this word denotes both uh, affection and commitment. Devotion maybe is a good synonym. Now, I, it's easy to picture how polyester pants that have just gone through the dryer might cling to your leg, because it's a physical object. But how does one cling to God, who is spiritual? How do you do that? Well, it seems that one clings to God similar to how they would cling to their spouse. That's what we saw in Genesis 2:24. And think about the parallels about how we would cling to our spouse as well as how we would cling to God. Well, to help you, as you see on the slide, I've come up with an acronym. CATS. And there you have a picture of a cat clinging to its owner. CATS. Communication, avoiding threats and temptation, time and service. How do we communicate with God? He speaks to us through his word. The way we speak to him is through prayer. The more we communicate with God, we're in communication with God, the stronger we will cling to him. The easier it will be, the closer we'll be, just like with our spouses. What is the biggest threat from God? Avoiding temptations, avoiding those Other suitors, like this adulterous woman in Proverbs 7, the things that say, find satisfaction in me. You will be more satisfied if you follow me other than God. The things that naturally draw your heart, that you would rather spend time doing. Avoid those threats and temptations. Guard yourself. Also time. Spend time with God. So it's not just... Ten minutes of the Bible, but as much as you could get, looking for every opportunity you can that's available to, to spend time with God, and also service. And this will be emphasized actually next week in Joshua twenty four. But the idea of service isn't just actions, it's um uh, serving the ends of God, serving his interests, not just in action. Make sense? Serving what he cares about. Like serving our spouse, it's not just about doing the dishes. It's about doing the dishes because that's what your spouse is burdened to do. Caring for them and the things that they care about. That's how we cling to God practically. And if you think about this, this is the same thing that John, um, in, in his book, John 15, Jesus says, it's to abide. The way we abide with God, thereby bear much fruit, is through keeping his word, praying, serving him. So this is, this is what we're called to do. We, we abide, and in abiding we cling. The second command Joshua presents is in verse 11. It says, be careful to love God. But before he gives the command, just as he does before, he reminds the Israelites of God's faithfulness. Look at verse nine. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand. Since it's the Lord, your God, who fights for you, just as he promised you. Be very careful, therefore. To love the Lord, your God. So the command is given in light of God's faithfulness. Because God has been faithful to fight for you and He's kept His promises, be very careful, therefore, to love Him. What an interesting exhortation. To be careful to love God. Be careful to love God. This tells us that God is not just interested in keeping, having them keep rules. He wants their heart. God wants us to love Him, not just know about Him, not just to obey Him. God wants our heart, not just our hands and our head. And the mature Christian is the one who recognizes this is what God really wants. This is ultimately what God wants. He wants us to love him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. And then everything else flows out of that. It's about love. And how easy it is for us just to focus upon faithfulness, doing the right thing. And yet slowly our affections for God wane. I think the same thing happens in marriages as well. We just become faithful to work and live together, get along with each other. And it's not like when we first met where it's just this devotion to caring for one another. Which is what God wants, which is what we want in our marriages as well. John Newton describes the mature Christian this way. He said a palace would be a prison to him without the Lord's presence. And with this, a prison would be a palace. And though he loves and adores the Lord for what he's done and suffered for him, delivered him from and appointed him to, yet he loves and adores him likewise with a more simple and direct love in which self is in a manner for God. And his heart can frame no higher wish than that the sovereign, wise, holy will of God may be accomplished in him and all his creatures. Now look at that and notice, there is no way that such love can be quantified or measured. It's not, it's not achieved. But it's obvious. When you see such love for the Lord, or even such love of one human to another human, it's obvious. And I think... That when thinking about what such love for God looks like, we really need examples. It's really helpful to think of people that we know that loved God like this. And the person that immediately came to my mind when I thought about it is a person that I became acquainted with when I was in college. And it's Sarah Pierpont, later Sarah Edwards. I think my favorite description of a person's affectionate relationship with God was found in Jonathan Edwards' description of Sarah Pierpont, who was the girl that he eventually came to marry. And when I actually read this, um, I was stunned to the extent that I went I, I bought a biography on this lady because I was so stunned by what Edwards described of her at 12 years old. She was 12 years old when he write, wrote this about her. I spent $80 for that biography, by the way, and then and then lost it. So, but then later on, it came out in print, and I got it for $10. So, they say there's a young lady in New Haven who is loved by that Almighty Being, who made and rules the world, and that there are certain seasons. In which this great being, in some way or another invisible, comes to her and fills her mind with exceeding sweet delight. And that she hardly cares for anything except to meditate upon him. That she expects that after a while to be received up where he is, to be raised out of this world and caught up into heaven. Being assured that he loves her too well to let her remain at a distance to him always. There she is to dwell with him and be ravished in his love Favor and delight forever. Therefore, if you present all the world before her with the richest of its treasures, she disregards it and cares nothing for it, and is unmindful of any pain or affliction. She has such a strange sweetness in her mind and sweetness of temper, uncommon purity in her affections, is most just and praiseworthy in all her actions, and you could not persuade her to do anything thought wrong or sinful. If you would give her all the world, lest she offend that great being. She is of a wonderful sweetness, calmness, and universal benevolence of mind, especially after those times in which this great God has manifested himself to her mind. She will sometimes go about seeing sweetly from place to place and seems to be always full of joy and pleasure. And no one knows for what. She loves to be alone. And to wander in the fields and on the mountains and seems to have someone invisible always conversing with her. Again, he wrote this about her when she was 12 years old. Which goes to say, youth, you don't have to be old to have an intimate relationship with God. This is something that can be yours now. Because it's not about what you do. It's about opening your heart to be completely committed to him. Devoted to him and his purposes. But notice also that Joshua exhorts them not just to love, but to be very careful to love. Again, it's the same root, the word careful, as keep in the previous exhortation. So he says that you would keep And do all of his commands. It's the same word. Careful. The word careful is keep. Or has the same root. So the Israelite leaders need to exercise extreme caution. To make sure they hold on to God's love. That they don't let their heart be led astray. This tells us that their love for God. Despite everything that he's already done for them. Is greatly threatened. Joshua knows their love for God will be threatened if they, if they begin to interact with these other nations. As he says in verse 12. That they might cling to the remnant of the nations remaining among them. And make marriages with them so that they would associate with them. He's concerned that they'd be led into spiritual adultery. The greatest threat to their love of God. Recognize Wasn't pain. It's not suffering. It's not poverty. Or sickness. The greatest threat to their relationship with God. To their love to God. Is these surrounding nations. He's worried that they'll eventually have their heart slowly and surely drawn away. Just like this adulterous woman that we saw described in Proverbs 7. But notice this Drawing away is not something that's just one great act of sin. It's something that takes slowly over the course of time when one's affections are slowly drawn away. Last Thursday, um, I was meeting with Calvin and Bruce uh, at uh, Elmer's. We were talking about God's word and My mind was reminded of a a story. I can't remember how it came up, but we were talking about Solomon. And it was reminded what happened in first Kings chapter 11, verses one through eight. Solomon, again, is the one who wrote Proverbs and warned his son about these adulterous and forbidden women. But notice what happened to Solomon. First Kings chapter 11. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old and his wives turned away his heart after other gods and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord, his God, as was the heart of his David, his father for Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David, his father, had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. So just one thing to note. All of those gods that were those peoples that were listed and their gods are the peoples that Joshua was warning them about. It's the very, very same people. Likewise, it's worth noting that the god the gods of Moab and of the Ammonites Chemosh and Molech were the gods where the people would offer up their children as human sacrifices to them. So this is not just flirting with worship. He has wholesale given his heart over to do abominations. This does not happen overnight. Our greatest threat, brothers and sisters, is not some great act of sin. It's slowly allowing our hearts to be drawn away from God and to have them fixed on other things. God's warnings for us to avoid the allurements of the world are not because God is trying to control us. He's trying to protect us. He actually cares about our fidelity. Being vigilant about guarding our heart is not legalism. It's love. Just think about it. How many of you, when reading Pro, uh, Solomon's warning to his son in Proverbs 7 were thinking, Good night, how legalistic that he would want to avoid this adulterous woman. How many wives would accuse their husbands of being legalistic when he averts his eyes because there's a woman walking down the street in scanty clothing? It's not legalism to avoid interacting with the adulterous woman. It's safe. It's honoring to the wife. Likewise, taking drastic aims to guard our heart is not legalism. It's love. It's love to God. There's this wonderful scene. In the Odyssey, where Odysseus has to pass by the sirens. These treacherous creatures who would sing seductive songs that would lead a person astray. And so to prepare himself, he has his men stuff wax in their ears and he commands them to strap him to the mast. So that he won't go crazy and recklessly heed their call. This is the sort of threat that the nations pose to Israel. Joshua would have the Israelites take such strong measures to guard themselves from him. And that's from them. So he says in verse 13, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. So the point being, there is nothing good that can come in allowing yourself to follow after these other nations. They will only bring you pain and eventually destroy you. So the reason they need to be careful to love God is to keep their hearts solely focused on God and to protect themselves from their own destruction. And then the exhortation ends fairly abruptly there's no appeal there's no compelling anecdote that he gives he just leaves them with the warning look at verses 14 through 16 he says and now i'm going to the way of all the earth and you know in your hearts and souls all of you that not one word is failed of all the good things that the lord your god promised concerning you Then the the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he's given you. So notice Joshua reminds them of God's faithfulness. That's the point. That just as God has been faithful to keep all of his promises to drive out these nations, if Israel is so foolish as not to drive them out and actually interact with them and then eventually be led astray they can be confident that God will be just as faithful to destroy them as well. If you don't guard your heart, you too will be destroyed. But as long as Israel keeps covenant, they have nothing to fear. It's as Paul said in Galatians chapter 6. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And again, Joshua ends this exhortation rather abruptly, and he does so because he wants the Israelites to consider the weight of the consequences. Of what he has just presented to them. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to consider the weight of allowing our hearts to be drawn away after other things, idols. Lord, I pray that you would help us to even examine our own hearts and our own lives to see. What are the greatest threats and temptations? Lord, even that you would help us to see how we can become more committed to time with you. In the word and in prayer. How we can serve your interests more. Be more devoted to what you are devoted to. And Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom now to help one another. For this is a difficult fight. Lord, we want to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because you are more satisfying than anything that this world has to offer. And, and what would we gain if we had the whole world and yet forfeited our own soul? And so, Father, I ask... On behalf of my brothers and sisters here. Restore to them the joy of their salvation. Draw them close to you. That they might abound in love and affection. Even pray for their marriages. Lord if there's any marriages that have waned in their passion. and their commitment to one another. That you would revive. A devotion and a commitment. Lord, that that any threats, any hindrances to time would be cut off. That we might be a holy people, pleasing you in every respect. We ask these things in Christ's name.